Welcome to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So Liz, we're going to skip our usual 80s trivia or we'll do it at the end of the show. Is it Def Leppard? Is it Def Le- Is that the answer? You know what? Oh, You're sorry. not funny. We're not You're doing not funny. Yet. Never mind. <laughs> Since we had such an entertaining, hilarious podcast last week, we're mm-hmm. going to switch to our serious gears this week. Because we're serious. we're so we're just so versatile. We're calling it serious hour instead of happy hour. <laughs> but we are joined today uh, by a guest I know that our listeners will uh, be very anxious to hear from. Uh, George Hill is with us today. He is a former Marine uh, Navy reservist after 9-11 and a retired FBI supervisory intelligence analyst um, who is coming forward courageously with uh, a handful of other current and former FBI uh, agents, officials who are blowing the whistle on this bureau and what it's been doing, um, its practices, and especially its targeting of American citizens on the right. So uh, George, uh, John Solomon had um, an article, I believe it was, I think it was last week, uh, or several days ago, talking about Mr. Hill and his testimony to the House Judiciary Committee and um, the, the targeting of people who traveled to D.C. on January 6th and some other issues. So we are so happy to have George Hill here today. George, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks, George. So- I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. So, George, why don't you just tell us first your background with the Bureau, what you did, where you were, um, and, you know, uh, how how you became involved with the FBI. Sure. So I'll start with the last part of your question, how I became involved with the FBI. Prior to the Bureau, I was with the National Security Agency uh, out of Fort Meade, and my wife's daughter um, had their first grandchild, and and she, you know, made the decision that she was going to move back to Massachusetts, and I would, you know, try to, you know, get there as soon as I could. And um, I found a, a, a job with the FBI as an intelligence, a supervisory intelligence analyst. And when I came to Boston in 2010, um, I uh, became the supervisor for what's called the national security programs. So I had counterterrorism, counterintelligence and cyber. And so I had all three of those programs, um, which was quite a bit. Um, but that wasn't enough. Um, I also, for two years, was the co-supervisor for the Boston Marathon Bombing Task Force. So at, at one time, I had over two dozen uh, direct reports. Um, so that was the, the situation for about eight years. And uh, my last two years with the Bureau, I moved on to the high-intensity drug trafficking area, also referred to as the HIDA. Um, and I ran the Investigative Support Center. Uh, in support of that, uh, we covered six states, so pretty much, you know, the whole northeast quadrant uh, of the United States. And um, it was um, there where I became exposed to um, the exchanges taking place between the FBI Boston office and the Washington field office. I had two analysts, one at the Boston Regional Intelligence Center, also lovingly referred to as the BRIC, and then the Commonwealth Fusion Center. Um, so those two individuals would interact very closely with the organizations that they, um, were 
working with, so Boston or the state of Massachusetts, and then the domestic terrorism squad. So that's basically my journey. So that's pretty extensive um, background, obviously very impressive. What uh, you want to talk a little bit about the Boston Marathon bombing investigation and and um, you know how that how that proceeded? Well, it's funny. Uh, I was I had a, a a phone conversation with Howie Carr, and he was amazed that 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 that, that you know went on for two years. Uh, you know, because people just you know they just think that you know the individual was arrested and. Um, and that's pretty much the end of it. But I had a team of analysts and then we also had agents on the task force that um, had to work with the U.S. attorney um, on bringing charges not only to Jahar Sanarev, but all of his um, satellite supporters, um, I think one of whom was um, uh, deported from the United States. Uh, but we got convictions uh, on all of them. And uh, but that went on for over two years uh, doing deep dives into all their digital and, uh, you know, online activities. Um, it was there we were able to show uh, during the discovery phase that Jahar Sanarev had engaged in extensive um, online research regarding uh, jihadism and Wahhabism, not jihadism, but Wahhabism and and the events going on in Chechnya. So we were able to show to his defense team before, long before it went to trial, that no, your position that he was pushed into this by his brother Tamerlan um, really doesn't stand up to very much uh, in the way of scrutiny. Um, so that was pretty extensive for, for, for two years. And, and that was all while I had the other three national security uh, programs. But, you know, it, you know, the, the history shows that we got a, not only a conviction, but a death penalty uh determination on Jahar. And, and uh, I will say that uh, probably sitting through the witness testimony, and obviously I didn't suffer anything like those poor people did, but uh, it was probably the hardest part of that entire effort. Isn't yeah, that, that still going on, George? Isn't isn't he appealing his death? He I mean, is. It's actually still not over for you, I guess. No, well, it is over. I mean, this is all now within the realm of the Department of Justice. Um, you know, the investigative work is done uh, by the Bureau, meaning complete it. Um, so that's all in the Department of Justice. He is appealing uh, the death penalty. Um, I don't recall um, if they had even asked for a change of venue. Um, Boston is, you know, not Wichita, Kansas, doesn't really uh, pop the radar as a bastion of right wing conservatism. Um, I think maybe they thought that they would have gotten. I uh, got a good fair trial in Boston, and in my estimation, they did. And so uh, they're appealing uh, the conviction now, kind of after the fact that uh, because it was held in Boston, that they, you know, uh, couldn't, you know, didn't really get a fair trial. So it's it's out of the hands of the bureau and squarely in the court of the Department of Justice. What did um before because it is such a tragic case, and I I believe that there was reporting that the FBI that these brothers were on their radar screen before what happened. Um, how, what was missed in that case? Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, so we were not sent a heads up from uh, the Russian intelligence services or domestic intelligence service. The acronym is escaping me right now. Um, the Russian domestic intelligence services keep track of all 
Chechens around the world. And we had a small, and emphasis on the word small, uh, Chechen expat community uh, in the Boston area. And this was simply uh, the Russians, you know, asking us to do some of their work for them. Um, we learned subsequent to our, you know, so, you know, after the bombing, you know, when we were, you know, and this is like days after, you know, when we were conducting interviews and meeting with people uh, within the Sonarev uh, sphere and, you know, and neighbors and people who may have known them. Um, we learned that there were people that were posing as, you know, FBI agents um, here in the United States checking on um, Chechens. So one thing can only deduce that we had, you know, Russian agents here in the United States um, looking, uh, trying to, you know, make a determination whether these Chechen expats posed a threat uh, to the United States. So, so a guardian, which is our uh, system for injecting leads, typically from other law enforcement agencies. Um, I believe this lead that, that people talk about in the media came from the Department of State it was so many years ago. It's, it's hard for me to recall exactly. Um, but that was assigned to an agent. There was a full investi- uh, IG uh, inquiry into that. And the, the guardian has the guardian process has very strict guidelines as to levels of intrusiveness. In other words, you can't just go up on a FISA or a Title III on somebody right out of the gate. You know, you have to go out interview people, you know, maybe even the subject and make a determination whether or not more intrusive means are necessary. And like it or not, and and I hate to say this, you know, because it it sounds trite and and trivial, but the agent abided by the guidelines set forth within the Guardian. And me as a strong supporter of the Constitution, I'm fine with that because, yes, I mean, yes, people died. It's horrible. You know, I'm not trying to minimize that. But at the same time, you know, people are entitled to constitutional protections and we just can't um, have a police state where we're investigating people all the time based on input from a hostile foreign government. But yet here we are <laughs> to segue to <clears throat> spying and, and the hostile government, of course, is our own. Um, but now we've got the FBI, the Bureau, um, and I know the Guardian system, I don't know if you want to get into the details of that, but now we have an FBI that's basically doing nothing, especially the Washington field office, but investigating, pursuing um, American citizens on the right for a political activity and speech. And, um, you know, this is what you have been talking to the committee about and obvi- and also talked to John Solomon about. So uh, why don't you tell our uh, our listeners, you know, what, what you can about what happened in the Boston field office and, you know, sort of the uh, strong arming by Washington field office for uh, what happened on January 6th, people in the Boston area and January 6th. Sure. So I discussed two key events that occurred subsequent to January 6th with the committee uh, as well as with John Solomon. Um, And they are, you know, I'll start with an overview and then drill down into detail. But the first one would be the uh, event that took place, I believe, on January 7th, where the Bank of America uh data mined their own customer base uh 
and they set a date range between 5 and 7 January. There was that, and I'll get back to that. And then there was the other event uh, that I discussed with the committee and John Solomon, although not the same level of detail with both, um, whereby uh, two people from Natick, Massachusetts, organized a couple of buses to go down for a political rally. So uh, if you want me to start back uh, chronologically on the BOA thing, I can, or unless you have a question, I'll pause for a second. No, go ahead. I mean, the the Bank of America stuff is pretty stunning, but yeah, just go ahead and, and talk about uh, what they were doing and <clears throat> how they wanted you to track these people down. Sure. So Bank of America took it upon themselves to data mine their customer base and identify any BOA customers who used a BOA product, whether that be a debit card or a credit card in the district anytime between the 5th and the 7th of January. So if you were a BOA customer and was in lawful, were in lawful possession of a BOA product uh, and you use that, um, you were going to get pulled in this, this, this data mining effort uh, from Bank of America. So if you had went to the district, say, for a conference or to visit a sick family member and use that BOA product, you're going to get pulled in, into that uh, data mining effort that BOA did. They also then uh, set parameters to pull in anybody who bought a plane ticket to travel to D.C. in between five or, you know, you know, four or five or, you know, four, you know, before prior to the 6th of January, but within reason, not, you know, over the Christmas holidays, but, you know, you know, when, when it was determined it was going to be this rally. And, and then they took that list and then um, layered on top of it, if you had ever purchased a firearm from Bank of, you know, using a Bank of America product. So, you, so the criteria are to summarize, you would have had to have used the BOA product in the district purchased an airline to go to the district prior to January 6th. And then at the top of the list, if you're already on that list from that based on that first set of criteria, if you had ever purchased a firearm, you went to the top of the list. They took that list. Um, George, just I'm sorry to interrupt you, but was this done with through a legal process or was Bank of America volunteering like they were just a volunteer of this information to the government yeah the fbi did not request it the fbi or bank of america took it upon themselves to send it um judicial watch has had a FOIA request in for two years now um i don't know where that is in the process but obviously it's not being expedited um so bank of america took it upon themselves so to send it now it's perfectly legal Obviously, if you see the commission of a crime to either, you know, depending on what the crime is, to report it to either federal authorities or local authorities. But there was no commission of a crime here. All we have is a, a business, a financial entity saying, well, you know, you were in the district using our products. I'm sure the FBI could use this and then sent it on to the FBI. You know, there's a host of questions then for an investigative journalist to pursue then, well, who at BOA made that decision? Was legal, their legal counsel involved? Was, you know, did somebody from the FBI actually request it kind of, you know, off book? You know, is there somebody working at BOA kind of like we see in Silicon Valley where we have all these intelligence uh, professionals that are now working in Silicon Valley? Were there people 
uh, from the FBI that were working at the FBI? Did, did those individuals take it or individual take it upon themselves to do it? So, you know, for, for any investigative journalist, um, you know, looking to make their bones, I, I think there's plenty to uh, to play with here. That's just in I mean, Bank of America, I don't think was the only company still to this day corporation who's doing that. I think have you heard? I mean, I obviously we know that the cell phone providers have been working with the FBI since I think even before January 6th to track down users. And I know use this geofence warrant to collect cell phone data from everyone who was in the Capitol or near the Capitol that day. But um, were you told anything about other companies, corporations who were doing sort of the same thing that Bank of America did? So I have to go back in front of the committee um, in, a, in a larger open hearing forum. And if it's OK uh, with you and Liz, I'd only like to comment on things that I have direct knowledge of. Sure. That's fine. That's fine. Um, so the Washington field office, just for people to understand, it's the most powerful FBI office in the country. It's usually a launching pad for FBI director. We know all of the chicanery that has come out of that office. I think Andy McCabe ran it before he was uh, uh, became deputy FBI director and then I think acting FBI director for a short period of time. Anyway, that is really the source of the rot in the FBI. And um, we know that Stephen D'Antuano, who was the head of the Detroit FBI field office during the Whitmer, what Liz coined, fednapping hoax. Um, as soon as the arrests were announced in that case in October of 2020, Christopher Ray promoted Stephen D'Antuano to take over the Washington field office, a plum assignment. Um, and so he was there uh, and he was sort of the conduit, according to a lot of witness testimony from the January 6th committee. He was the conduit. He was collecting intelligence and and he was the guy where all of this intel or whatever was being filtered to. He then led the investigation, criminal investigation for January 6th until he retired at the end of November 2022. Um, but it, if you can describe the sort of strong arming that was coming out of the Washington field office to Boston, what they were asking, who really was responsible for it um, and how, you know, how that all went down. Sure. So in the military, um, we have a, a term that probably coined before I ever, you know, was born called commander's intent. Um, and it's a tone that is set by the commanding officer of what their expectations are. Um, emphasis on the word tone, not necessarily uh, commander's intent is different from, you know, strict written guidance like you will do this. The deadline is that commander's intent just just sets the tone. So on January 7th, um, uh I, I don't want to say their names out loud because th their lawyers have been very aggressive, but two individuals, one from the Washington field office and another from uh, DTOS, um, Domestic Terrorism Operations um, Section, um, organized a nationwide conference call that was conducted over 56 fusion centers across the country. And just doing simple math without you know, and, and, and exercising some constraint, there were thousands of people at, at any given time on these calls that took place I, for the first couple of days, almost twice a day. And, and then after about 
two full business weeks, went to once a day. And then after about, and, and my memory's a little shady on this, we're talking two years ago, but after about six to eight weeks kind of dropped off to weekly calls. Um, but the level of hysteria coming out of the Washington field office that opened up these calls um, was antithetical to the kind of calm, clear uh, leadership that one would expect um, in an environment that is that is not friendly to, uh, you know, it, it was certainly in a military environment, but, you know, in, in a national setting. Um, so the Washington field office would kick it off. The, the conference calls, in, like I said, in an almost hysterical fashion, going over, repeating time and time again how our democracy was almost taken over, and that we haven't seen anything like this since 1812, and yada, yada, oh yada. And then, then the, the DTOS, uh, Domestic Terrorism Operations Center, gentlemen would, would then take the call and get into more operational details. Now, keeping in mind that... <laughs> The people on this phone call, not all of them were FBI personnel. Matter of fact, most of the people on these calls were more than likely um, state and local law enforcement, uh, politicians, political appointees. Um, so the, the tone that went out from Seattle to Miami, from San Diego to Bangor, Maine, was that of our country is under attack and, you know, if not for the great work, the Capitol Hill police uh, would have collapsed. Um, and so that was the tone. And that tone continues, albeit not via conference call today, but that tone continues to this day. Um, George, that. do you think they believe this? I mean, do you think that the people with this tone actually believe that this was the greatest threat to democracy since 1812? Or you know, do you I think they have another... I don't know what's in their head and I don't want to speculate as to, you know, where they're coming down on this. Um, I will say that, you know, in, in my 40 plus years in the business um, that, you know, we. Congress did not go into session during covid uh, for, I think, over a year, yet there were tens of thousands of Confederate troops. A carriage ride outside of Washington, D.C. for years and Congress still held session. Um, there was the bomb that went off in the Senate cloakroom, I believe, in 1996. There were multiple, um, you know, code pink interruptions in, in various sessions of Congress. Um, so I, I, you know, people being, you know, accosted in the elevator during Supreme Court hearings. So I, I do not ascribe to some people's belief that our country almost collapsed on January 6th. I, but I can't speak for anyone else. What was the reaction? I mean, how were all of these? And I'm, I'm curious, too, you said, well, you probably can't say, so we're not going to ask. But what was the how was this being received by all 56 field offices and all these people on the calls? Were they initially buying into it and then over time thought this is hysterical or I mean, what what was the reaction um, so just want to correct, it was 56 fusion centers, not field offices. Now, the field offices were involved, but this was directed at the fusion centers, which was a post 9-11 creation in the Patriot Act to um, bring local law enforcement into closer contact with, with federal capability. So this was a okay. fusion center conference call. 
Uh, and this is under D- DHS, is that? No, Fusion no, centers, or no. it's just okay. Uh, yeah, it, it is joint. It's joint DHS and FBI. Yes. Okay. So there was a, a, a DHS, at least in the Commonwealth Fusion Center, there was a DHS uh, intelligence analyst uh, embedded there as well. Um, but to your question, um, what was the reaction? Of course, my observations are, are going to be strictly anecdotal, um, but talking to people in other field offices, there was a significant percentage, uh, over 50 percent, truly believed that um, that our country almost collapsed on January 6th. Uh, and, and and that would vary from field office to field office, obviously, you know, so say if you went to, um, you know, the Detroit office, they may, you know, it may be 60-40 or, or, you know, 50-50, you know, Washington field office, probably 95-5. Um, you know, I, I'd say my observation in Boston was probably 60-40, 60% felt that, you know, the country just about collapsed Uh on January 6th and, and the constitutional Republic ended. Um, and that those numbers haven't really changed very much. This is, that's very alarming <laughs> because, um, I, yeah, that's, that is, I mean, I remember yeah. Julie and I watched this streaming together. Well, we weren't together, but we were on a computer together, like just chatting about watching it happen. And, at no point did I think that America was finished, like over kaput, like anarchy by watching it. So I'm surpri- surprised. And that's why I asked you the question previously. Like, I find it hard to believe that people watch this and thought that this was the end of our country. I, I, it's such a huge disconnect. I'm sure Julie agrees. Completely. I mean, we did a podcast on January 7th and we were like, okay, this is the most overblown hysterical response to, you know, a few hour riot protest, whatever you want to call it. Um, We we had had seen five months of cities burning, attacks on federal buildings, attacks on federal officers at those federal buildings. A lockdown of the White House. Nothing happened. Yep. We saw that. Yep, exactly. We saw all of this um, trouble because Trump wanted to push the boundaries out further so that there was more room to protect the White House from the violence that was coming. And we did not see this level of hysteria. And now all of a sudden, America's over. (laughs) It's just such a disconnect. Was it sort of like a PSYOP where you have these highly partisan players in the Washington field office who are setting the tone early on and getting buy-in from their own agents, investigators, uh, law enfor- local law enforcement, to make them believe that you know this is coming from the highest levels of the top law enforcement investigative body in the country um, and, and everybody better fall in line? It, was that sort of it or or were these people just immediately buying into it like they didn't have to be persuaded? So, again, you know, I have to you know be very cautious about what I say and, and how I say sure. it. Um, but I will say this. When you are a senior executive with the FBI and the assistant director in charge of the Washington field office, when you speak your megaphone and when you speak to 56 field offices 
you are representing the FBI and it is a very large, powerful megaphone. You, you are authorized essentially, not essentially, I'm not going to couch my language. You are authorized to speak for the FBI. You're carrying the full weight of not just that organization, but the Department of Justice and the full force of the federal government. But that voice was extremely powerful. And it went, like I said, from Seattle to Miami, to San Diego to Bangor, from New Orleans to Duluth, Minnesota. Everyone heard it. Well, that's fascinating because as much as I've covered this and Liz knows this and Liz has too, <clears throat> I I had not heard that. So that's that's very interesting how this was all um, set up. So then over as the months are progressing and the FBI is using all of its resources basically to track down Americans, um, was did you sense any shift or we and I do want to get back to specifically what was happening in in Boston. Um, And we've heard from some whistleblowers like Steve Friend, who did not want to get involved in these FBI armed SWAT raids of trespassers. Um, So as time went on, and now here we are two years later, they're still investigating and arresting people. They just arrested a man a few days ago in Texas, I believe. Um, is there any like fatigue in this that you can sense? I, and if you can't talk about it, that's fine too. Um, but I'm Again, just curious about that. Having been out for, you know, over a year, um, I still have plenty of friends in the bureau, uh, scattered around the country. And I would say that the energy and enthusiasm levels have not abated, uh, on, you know, tracking down, uh, these people who almost, you know, destroyed our democracy. And I'm, I'm speaking very cheeky on that last sentence. Wow. <clears throat> what can, I mean, okay, ha- so, let me hang on just a second. Yeah. So using WFO's own press releases and, and, and as an example, they still expect over 900 more arrests. Right. So th- there's, there's, there's no indication of change of course or lack of energy and enthusiasm. I know that um, Matthew Graves, the uh, U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, told The Washington Post that they he believed that they were going to end up with 2000 total defendants. They're almost at a thousand now. Right. The the FBI on the two year anniversary of January 6th said the investigation would be going on for years. And I've seen some reporting where they're actually getting nervous that the statute of limitations say on, you know, a class B low level misdemeanor, like parading in the Capitol is going to expire before they have a chance to, you know, arrest all of these, these people. Um, But I I do want to pivot back to Washington field office for a second and Stephen D'Antuano, because he also was in charge of the pipe bomb investigation how is it possible that here we are more, what are we now, 25 months later, 26 almost, um, you know, Dan Tuano and Michael Sherwin, who was the acting U.S. attorney in D.C. at the time, they made a big deal about the pipe bombers. Um, and here we are, they, they can collect all this data from private industry, but we, they still don't have, not only that they not identified or arrested, it's been completely memory hold. I don't even think the January 6th committee even looked into this. So to the extent that you can, can you talk a little bit about that investigation and, and how can they not have found this guy by now? 
Sure. So regardless of where I sit in, in terms of the whistleblower, I'm still bound by non-disclosure agreements and I cannot comment on any ongoing investigation. However, I can comment on an investigation that I have firsthand knowledge of, and that is the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, on April 16th, um, you know, we were able uh, well by before April 16th, probably late on the evening of the 15th, we were able to get what's called a tower dump of all the cell phones that were in usage um, at the time that the bomb went off. And within we also we did our own analysis in Boston with one of the analysts who was on the um, Marathon Bombing Task Force um, and then the cast team out of FBI, uh, I believe, Sir Critical Incident Response Group. And I forget what CAS stands for CAS, um, but cell phone analysis section. I, I, I but I, I may be wrong. Uh, I'm sure somebody, some fact checker will hear this and, and have a meltdown over it. But um you know, so we were able to identify pretty quickly, uh, you know, what cell phones were in use, you know, and then there's a an analytical process to narrow that list down. And then we, you know, started digging into all those people. Um, and so we had a pretty good idea um, within 48 hours of at least the phone that we were after. So I worked at the National Security Agency and definitely not going to get into anything there, but it's pretty easy in today's day and age to find a phone. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's silly easy. And so that, that's pretty much all I'm willing to say uh, about that. And I mean, we know that the the alleged bomber used a phone. I think Darren Beatty at Revolver News has done really great investigative reporting on this. I think when the bomber sat down outside of the DNC, he actually is is on his phone. So, um, yeah, it's just one of those things that still doesn't make any sense. But I, I do think House investigators are going to be looking in into that. Um, one thing that I did find out about the pipe bomb threat was that it allowed police to go to two different channels. So there was a public channel and then there was a private channel. And to my knowledge, I, I don't think that anything related to the private channel. And I know Georgie probably, you know, you can't speak on this or no, but uh, we haven't seen any communications from that private channel, which just makes you think, well, what were they talking about? And, um, you know, was this even a legitimate bomb threat or was this part of a, you know, another stunt that kind of fed into this overall, what we believe, I believe in Liz too, I think inside job of January 6th. Um, so maybe we'll find out more about this, the alleged pipe bomber. But George, I do want to go back to two things that we've covered, and that is the um, surveillance video and uh, the use of informants. Can you just talk generally and because I'm learning more and more about how the FBI uses informants, I know Kyle Serafin told me that every agent is required to have a confidential human source on the books. Um, also that they're paid in cash, which kind of blew me away when I was covering the Whitmer trials. Um, what? How do confidential human sources work? How is the Bureau using them? Um, I know there's been also the IG, Michael Horowitz at DOJ, issued a lengthy report in 2019 about the abuses in that program, lack of oversight, 
um, et cetera. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about the uh, Confidential Human Source Program and how it works? Um, yeah, very little, um, because there we're getting into TTPs, techniques, tactics, and procedures, and I could really, um, really get myself jammed up there. So, um, I will say this, um, I will comment on Kyle's, uh, comment that, you know, that each agent is required to have CHSs, um, in that there is also a review process and those CHSs actually have to be producing. And that's always a, um, a, a field office health measure, it's called. And if, if you have CHSs, that's great. But if they're not actually, you know, adding value and providing uh, insight or, you know, uh, understanding of a threat or insight into some sort of an investigation, um, you got to let them go. Um, and, and that's that's all I'll say um, uh, about CHSs. I mean, in that, I mean, it, it should be part of a mosaic. You should have multiple forms of intelligence, whether it be CHSs, uh, either in DOD or law enforcement, um, electronic means of, of intelligence collection, which then require either a Title III, uh, pen register, or FISA, something of that nature. Um, so ideally, you know, uh, if you're operating a domestic intelligence agency like the FBI is doing, um, you want to have multiple forms uh, of intelligence in order to get the clearest picture possible. But beyond that, I'm just really not willing to talk much about CHSs. Um, George, can I just ask this question? Maybe this is also something you can't answer, but it sounds to me that if you're a co- if someone is a confidential human source, that they have there's a certain pressure to provide information, or else they'll their paycheck will go away, which seems like that might taint the value or accuracy of that information. I don't know if you can comment on that, but that's just my opinion. Well, sure. That's, that's, you know, I said that just, you know, in a different way a few seconds ago in that, you know, there's a, there's a reporting mechanism um, in, in, in a closed loop network that's not facing outward facing towards the internet of, of CHS reporting. So if, if your CHS is not producing something, um, just use layman's terms, they kind of like go on probation and the agents, you know, kind of, you know, meets with their supervisor and says, hey, you know, either, you know, this person either starts producing or you got to cut them loose. Um, so there is a, a process for that. You just can't keep these people on the payroll indefinitely um, just because maybe someday, hopefully, uh, that's that's not good enough. They actually have to be providing some value, some insight. I think in list to your question in the Horowitz report about the CHS program, there was a lot of concern about long-term sources. There's supposed to be like some sort of annual vetting program. And these informants just kind of stick around for years. And we saw this in Whitmer too. And, you know, a lot of these guys are sketchy. Um, They're paid in cash. Yesterday in the Proud Boys trial, they're starting to dig into the use of multiple CHSs in the Proud Boys trial um, and this this sort of incentivizing informants, what they call a reward. Um, and they're paid in cash and envelopes, not traceable. So I think just in the overall scope of January 6th, and we can kind of get back, George, to your conversation with John Solomon, and one reason why... DOJ and Capitol Police want to keep this 14,000 hours of surveillance video under wraps and why they didn't want to turn it over, it sounds like, to Boston, you know, for proof of some criminality with this 104 
or 140 people who went to DC is that they might be able to identify some of these CHSs in the surveillance video. Can you talk a little bit about that, George? Um, yes and no. Um, I, I'll just repeat the answer that came back from WFO, quote, there may be individuals contained within those videos whose identity we need to protect, end quote. Um, I'm not going to speculate. Um, I'll leave that up to anyone else. Um, they can speculate about you know, what that actually means. Um, I have my own opinion, and I'm going to keep it to myself because, like I said, I, ha I have to go back in front of the committee, and I'll, I'll talk about what I know. Um, but I do want to add one thing about CHSs is that, yeah, I mean, uh, Inspector Horowitz was absolutely correct on that. And it, it's always an issue that shows up on any uh, inspection uh, that an office has as to, you know, you just can't keep these people on the books indefinitely. It, it's, it's an ongoing problem. And also, in terms of sources being sketchy, well, Eagle Scouts don't become sources uh, unless we're talking political <laughs> corruption. Um, so we also learned, uh, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan, that uh, when running sources, because in my military career, I'm, I'm an intelligence specialist um, and an interrogator, when running sources overseas, some of those sources will take the opportunity to uh, carry out vendettas against, you know, and blood feuds against other tribes or other individuals. So running sources is just is a skill. And it's one that um, is is rife with pitfalls, and you know there's been arguments in in the in the business, you know that you know the CIA likes to pay their sources, the FBI likes to recruit their sources. It's a much longer process. Um, so you know the whole business of sources is, is kind of messy, and and just the very nature of it, it's never going to change. I mean, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're not going to have, uh, I mean, there are people who are operating in, in criminal worlds, but it, to the extent that they can be useful, I guess you have to depend on them. Um, so, George, how serious do you sense House Republicans are? Obviously, it's great that you've talked to them. You're going to talk with them again. It sounds like you said in an open forum. Do you get the sense that they are very serious? I think that's a concern of Republicans, just the base, that this is a lot of show. They're not going to produce much of anything, and they're not going to do anything. So what's your sense of what's happening in, in Congress? Sure. I, I can't comment on where half the Republicans or half the members of Congress sit on, on levels of seriousness. I do know that in, in the, the, the uh, working with Congressman Jordan and his people, that they seem very earnest and serious about it. But to your question, uh, it's going to require uh, not only Republican support, but Democrat support. Um, you know, there's talk of like another church commission. Um, Dana Priest from The Washington Post, I don't know if she's still there or not, did a series of articles in early 2010. Uh, regarding the explosive growth of the intelligence community, of which the FBI is a member, um, this really does need to be looked at, and not just in the aspect of, of whack-a-mole, like, oh, the FBI did this, the FBI did that. It needs to be looked at not only in its totality, but from the beginning of when this was created with the Patriot Act and the creation of a domestic intelligence service. A lot of people don't know that the FBI never had a domestic intelligence capability prior to September 11th. 
the genesis of that was when George Bush said to Bob Mueller, I know you're going to catch them, Bob, but what are you going to do to stop the next one? And it was decided in Congress that the FBI would have an American version of MI5, the British Domestic Intelligence Service, but we would lash it up to the FBI. And, you know, so that is going to take a lot of, of uh, political will uh, to, to, to look at that, to, to go back 20 years and say, is this the construct that, that, that we want to have that is both going to protect American citizens within the confines of the rule of law and the Constitution? And is it worth the, the price that we're, we're seeing being uh, remitted now um, in terms of constitutional trespassing? George, do you think that the FBI is concerned about these congressional invest the inve- congressional investigations? And so I guess that's a two part question. So that's my first part. And my second part is, um, is there anything that Congress can do? I mean, I know you just mentioned going back to B- Bush's um, what George Bush said to to Bob Mueller, but could they cut off money? I mean, is the threat of being defunded? Does that carry any weight? What are your thoughts if you can talk about that? Sure. So, again, you know, uh, being an intelligence professional, I'll, I'll make assessments based on evidence. And, and the FBI just got approval for a huge piece of land to rebuild, you know, to build a new headquarters. It's, I think, twice the size of the Pentagon. Um, the FBI said they're going to close, move close to 2000 cases investigating, uh, you know, for 9-11. Um, so, you know, just based on those two data points alone, I would say that no one in positions of leadership of the FBI has lost one minute's sleep uh, over any of this. Uh, to the contrary, I think that they actually have, you know, doubled down uh, on their efforts and feel unconstrained. I agree with you. <laughs> I mean, they just got a $570 million raise. <laughs> I mean, DOJ just got a three out of a $3.5 billion raise. 18 Republican senators voted for it. I mean, they they don't have to be afraid, right? Especially the power of the purse, which Republicans have a little bit. I mean, I, I, you're absolutely right. No, I mean, I'm they sure do. No, that's, they do have the power. That That's literally the check and balance, right? That's part of our constitutional process is that Congress has the power of the purse. It's just that we have sad people that are elected into office. <laughs> that's the problem. Right. And, and a leadership and I'm as to George's point, and we've heard this from other whistleblowers and I've seen this myself just covering January 6th. It's not just a headquarters issue. I mean, it's, it's, and it's not just the FBI. I think that's a very good point, George. I mean, the surveillance state in America spying on its own citizens is massive. So it shouldn't just be pigeonholing the FBI, even though they're the most brazen about it. But and it doesn't just involve government agencies. I mean, now you've got big tech. We know are in we're in cahoots with the FBI, um, you know, to suppress, to spy on Twitter accounts and to suppress free speech. And now we see corporations who are working. They, I mean, I don't even think AT&T or Verizon needs a warrant from the FBI to turn over cell phone data for suspects in January 6th. They're just working with them directly because, as you said initially, George, you know, the FBI has plants in private industry everywhere, former officials who then go to work for big companies, 
like Jim Baker went to Twitter. You have Stephen D'Antuano just went to KPMG. So do they run interference for these companies? Are they, it's just, the surveillance state is so massive and so powerful. It's hard to see at this point how any of it could be dismantled. So, you know, it's not up to me uh, to defend the FBI and I'm not defending the FBI, but to be fair, Congress created this monster, this surveillance state monster. They created it with the Patriot Act. They created it with the expansion of FISA. They created this 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 uh, surveillance state, which Dana Priest raised the alarm over 10 years ago that, that this is out of control. And it's gotten far worse since then. So you're, you're essentially what we three on the, this podcast are asking is, not just for the FBI to be and some of those uh, uh, transgressions be addressed, but what really needs to be addressed is the creator of the monster. We were asking Dr. Frankenstein to fix himself for creating Frankenstein's monster. Congress created this. Only Congress can fix this. And I don't see across the spectrum both Democrat, Republican, and Independent, and and through the Senate, and certainly through the executive branch, the the will, the willingness to do so, because it just offers so much control. And as long as you keep a country in a state of fear, whether it's balloons that may be UFOs or Russia's going to nuke this, you you're never going to like I talked about earlier about the, the hysterical nature of those phone calls after January sixth. They, they've got half the country in a state of abject terror all the time. And, and then they just find ways to add to it. You've got 21 million people being affected by hazardous chemicals waking, making their way down the Ohio River. And the executive branch is still, you know, uh, AWOL, accident without leave. And nobody's shown up out there. So it's this, this state of fear. They take every opportunity they can to perpetuate it. And um, Dr. Frankenstein is going to have to take a good look at himself. He created, you know, I mean that in the non-gender sense, but they created this mess. I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, I know Liz is a a libertarian. I'm a former neocon. So, you know, we have we were all on board with post 9-11 and empowering and trusting. No, 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 no. I was no, you were not. I'm blaming myself. you, You can know. Look, I mean, if you watch government long enough, you can see the trends and you know that as soon as they got some kind of power, they're going to exploit it. And so, yes, everyone was like terrorist bad, America good after 9-11, but they should never. The Patriot Act was always a problem and it continues to be a problem because it's elements of it are always renewed without issue over and over again. So I just want to go on the record and say that. No, you're right. I'm I'm blaming my fellow neocons as a former neocon. But I do think, too, it's interesting, George, and you talk about the Washington Post and, you know, the liberals who were screaming bloody murder about using these tools, not against Americans, but, you know, even against suspected foreign terrorists that they were opposed to that. And you haven't heard any objection to this expanding surveillance state um, from people on the left or the media. To the contrary, they're they're embracing it. They're empowering government to to do this with their silence. Because they're afraid. 
they're afraid. Um, and you know, one of the driving engines for fear is ignorance and ignorance is not a pejorative term. It just means they lack knowledge. Well, I think we saw that with COVID. I mean, if there was ever a lesson to be learned, it's that fear, you know, lets fear takes people, takes over people's mind, their sensibility, their judgment, they comply with whatever they're told. Um, and nowhere did we ever see that more than, than the COVID hysteria hysteria. And so when you have people who are living with fear, they're going to be silent. They're going to comply with the regime and hope that they stay out of the crosshairs. But history shows us that's, that's not the case. Sure. And one of the best ways to dial down fear is the free flow of information. And what do we see going on in, in Silicon Valley is the stifling of information. Um, dialogue and sunlight are great disinfectants. Um, but, you know, we see people on, on the left primarily um, more interested in, in shutting down uh, dialogue and fresh air. And, um, and until that sunlight is allowed in and until people are allowed to speak freely, this state of fear will continue. And it's probably going to get worse. I agree. It is it is going to get worse um, because they are being empowered by so many level at so many levels and financially. I mean, Congress, to your point, Dr. Frankenstein keeps turning over large amounts of money with no strings attached, no accountability. Um, and so the it's 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 kind of a dismal situation. But it is good that House Republicans seem focused on this. And look, if they do release these tapes, if they do release documents that they get their hands on, that is the sunshine that hopefully will jolt most Americans into understanding, coming to terms with what's right in front of us. Um, So to the extent that they can do that, let's hope that they do. That's a mic drop right there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good, because it is an hour. It's been an hour. So we are up. This was great which is amazing. But thank you, George. Thank you for your service. You know, thank you for, for being a good guy when so many people have turned away from law enforcement apparatus, which previously was held in a lot of high esteem. I know I was raised to have a lot of respect for the police and for law enforcement and federal, federal, you know, anyone working for the government who's in a life of public service. And just in the last like five years, um, I've lost a lot of that, but it's always nice to have someone virtuous kind of put their foot down and um, just say that they weren't, they're not going to go along with some of this stuff. So thank you again for that. Yeah. And thank you well, listeners. Um, and just to take away, don't ever buy a firearm with a bank of America product <laughs> Use or your anything gold with coins. bank of America, use your gold coins or whatever you're stashing, <laughs> you know, your batteries or whatever, that you're using as currency, but don't use Bank of America. It's actually, it, you know what? It's all of them. It, I don't, I mean, Bank of America, it's probably all of them. Um, so cash is king before that's outlawed. Um, again, thank you, George. Julie, do you have any closing words for us? No, just thank you, George, so much. Thank you for being courageous and coming forward and speaking the truth. And I know I look forward to hearing more from you and um, hopefully we can have you back on. Oh, no, thanks. Necessary. It's, it's an honor and a privilege to serve this country. I'd love it dearly. Um, but just closing, um, I have been approached by numerous agents, my friends in the gym, people I don't know in the gym saying thank you. So I, 
I have not received any criticism Good. from from anyone. I, I think there's a lot of people out there, um, you know, that are silently suffering um, that, that want to see us return back to a constitutional republic. And I'll stop there. Well, there's the old saying, courage is contagious. So hopefully yeah. with people like you and Kyle and others stepping forward, um, you know, we'll get a cascade of, of courageous people, not just in the FBI, but in all of these sectors. Uh, you know, telling the American people what's going on. All right. Thanks, listeners, for tuning in. We will be back next week. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Bye.